Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Last week we enjoyed a sandwich together, uh, or at least the beginnings of a sandwich, like the Blue Heron sandwich pictured here. I actually had a little one in the uh, commons this morning say, why do you talk so much about sandwiches? That was interesting that they're paying attention that much. For you see, Mark 11, 12 through 25, that larger portion of Scripture is a sandwich. How is that so? Well, the sandwich, also known as bracketing, is a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. And so the stories become interwoven together to make a stronger case. And so for that purpose, Mark makes a sandwich. He interweaves the stories of the cursing of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple to make a stronger point. Verses 12 through 14 and 20 to 25 that we covered last week, that forms the bread of the sandwich. The cursing of the fig tree, part one, and the cursing of the fig tree, part two. And now in the middle, we've got the best part. We've got the meat which today's text is chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, the cursing of the temple. Now, before we enjoy our sandwich all put together, we need to reestablish the setting. Remember that just a few days before the events in today's text, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey on what we know as Palm Sunday. This ushered in Holy Week the beginning of the end, for in just a few short days on Good Friday, Jesus will be nailed to a cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But if you remember, that passage and that Palm Sunday passage ended rather strangely. For it said in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, what was Jesus doing when he was looking around at everything in the temple? He was inspecting it. He was evaluating it and determining whether or not it was fulfilling its intended purpose. And what did Jesus conclude about what was going on in the temple? The temple, its ministry, and its leadership were characterized by empty religion. While they had the appearance of fruit, they were actually void of fruit. And it is this evaluation that is the core of everything that's happening in this passage, um, this evaluation of the temple in Judaism that caused Jesus to curse the barren fig tree. It was an acted out parable. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to tell a story. It's another thing for him to act it out and to show the story. And so the fig tree was full of leaves advertising that it had fruit, but upon inspection, there was no fruit, just like the temple. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree, leaving it to wither from its roots and foreshadowing what he was about to do in the temple itself. And so with that in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text? Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple 
and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, um, some similar themes to last week, as what Jesus did in an acted-out parable, he's going to do literally here in the temple. And so, God, as we've been um, meditating on the truths from last week's message, may we continue to build on those this week, and may they penetrate our hearts. Perhaps we're more like the fig tree and more like the temple than we realize. And God, it is because of your great love for us that you desire to correct us so that we can be all that you intend for us to be. And then in that particular case, we'll experience all the joy and fullness of all that you intend for us to be. And so, God, through your word this morning, we ask that you would make it so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So there there are really four things that we need to consider in this story of the cursing of the temple. We're going to take a few minutes to talk about the history of the temple, the purpose of the temple, the abuse of the temple, and then finally, the judgment of the temple the temple. And so let's look at the very first of these, the history of the temple. It it originated, if you remember, during the wilderness journeys of the Israelites when God commanded Moses to build, what was that called? The tabernacle. We spent a whole sermon series unpacking the different elements of the tabernacle a few years ago. Um, I would love to do that again sometime, That, that ministered to me. The tabernacle was essentially a portable temple. Um, It was easily picked up and moved. When the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud moved, signaling that God's people were to move, they would pack up this portable temple and it would move with God. It was here that God would dwell among his people and it was a sacred place of sacrifice, of worship, and of prayer. And a key principle of the tabernacle that will be important today is the division of the holy place or the tent from an outer courtyard. There was a division between the holy place, the tent, from an outer courtyard. And as we'll see in a few moments, the future temple in Jerusalem would have a similar design. The portable tabernacle would function as Israel's spiritual center for as many as 500 years until King Solomon built an elaborate fixed temple in Jerusalem. It was built on Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered his son Isaac to God. And many of the elements of this Jerusalem temple corresponded to those of the wilderness tabernacle. And this, again, included a holy place which was separated from an outer courtyard. Solomon's temple stood for 400 years until what event? The Babylonian exile. The temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. It was God's judgment on his people for their disobedience and their idolatry. It was an exile that lasted 70 years, at which point the Jews were permitted to return to Jerusalem and 
construct a new temple under the direction of a man named Zerubbabel. In some ways, this was a very happy occasion for God's people. They're back in Jerusalem. They're building a new temple. Um, they're very excited about what's going on. The priests and Levites, though, they, they led the singing of the same songs that their ancestors had sung at the dedication of the first temple. But the older people who had seen the original temple, they wept. Why did they weep? Because this new temple was actually much smaller and less impressive than King Solomon's original temple. Well, enter Herod the Great, somebody that we just talked about not too long ago in our Advent series. In 20 BC, this governor of the region, Herod the Great, he began to expand the temple actually doubling its size, a project that wasn't actually completed until 64 A.D. So a big project, and it is this expanded temple of Herod the Great that is our setting for the events in today's passage. So that's just a little bit about the history of the temple. Now let's talk about the purpose of the temple, which, which was summed up very simply by the prophet Isaiah who said in Isaiah 56, 7, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And that is the key phrase today. It is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. According to this verse, the temple had two main purposes. Purpose number one was this. It was prayer slash worship. Prayer and worship. It was in fact to be called a house of prayer, a place where people could come and connect relationally with God to worship Him. You'll remember from our past study of the tabernacle that it was to be a place where God would dwell among His people and where He would fellowship with them and he, they would fellowship with Him. The purpose of the fixed temple in Jerusalem was exactly the same. It was to be first and foremost a place of prayer and worship. But it was also to be a place of evangelism. Don't miss this. You see, from the very beginning, God had given Israel a mission, a mission that largely they failed. The mission that they were given is given in Isaiah 42.6, where it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. A light for the nations. The idea was that all the other nations of the world, these are Gentiles, would see how graciously God cared for and related to His people, the Jews, even providing for their redemption from sin so that they too would be drawn to God and find salvation. God was intending to draw all peoples to Himself and use His relationship with the Jews as a model for what that was to look like, as an, as an advertisement, as an enticement to say, I want everyone to know me this way. Therefore, there was for this purpose a specific part of the temple complex known as the court of the Gentiles. And uh, it's here marked by these red boxes. These are, it's a large area, two large areas. And you see, the temple was set up in a series of layers or courts. And this is the outer layer known as the court of the Gentiles where everyone was permitted 
Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone could be in the court of the Gentiles. Quickly, the next layer was the court of women. Notice that it is a layer closer to the center of the temple to where the holy place was and the holy of holies. Um, It is closer than the court of the Gentiles. And here, Jewish women were permitted to worship, but no Gentiles, only Jewish women. And it was also true that the Jewish women could not proceed any further toward the center of the temple. The next layer was called the court of the Israelites. And once again, it was another layer closer to the center. In this area, only the Jewish men were allowed to gather into worship. And this was followed by the court of the priests, where only the priests were allowed to be and where the sacrifices were offered to the Lord. And then finally, there was the layer known as the holy place, which contained the most holy place, the holy of holies, just like in the tent of the tabernacle, where God's very presence was to dwell among his people. Now, the events in our text today take place in the part of the temple known as what? The court of the Gentiles, those two big red boxes in that outer layer of the temple. And remember, what is the purpose of that area? It's to be a place of prayer and worship as well as evangelism. It was the area where non-Jews were permitted to come and to connect with God. So very important that this purpose be fulfilled. However, there's a problem. They were hindered in doing so because of the third section of our outline, which is the abuse of the temple. The abuse of the temple. There there were three primary abuses that were taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which hindered the purposes of worship and evangelism. The first abuse was distraction. You see, it was in this area, those two big red boxes, um, it it was meant to be that place of prayer for worship for the Gentiles, but it turned into a noisy, chaotic place of buying and selling. What was being bought and sold? Two things. Number one, every male Jew, 20 years or older, was required to pay a yearly temple tax. However, the temple tax could only be paid using Jewish coinage. And so religious pilgrims had to come from all over and to exchange their money for the right coins to be able to pay the temple tax. So, This became a very noisy, clanging, very boisterous endeavor. And where was this exchange taking place? In the court of the Gentiles, the place that was supposed to be reserved for worship, prayer, and for evangelism. The place where the nations were supposed to be able to come and to pray and worship and experience God's presence among his people. The second distraction, though, was even greater. Religious pilgrims for the Passover also had to bring an animal without blemish to be their Passover sacrifice that they would give to the priests who would sacrifice it on their behalf. Now, you could bring your own animal with you, but what if you were traveling a long distance? That's very cumbersome to have to bring your animal and to travel with it a long distance and risk the, the, the possibility that you would offer it to the priest and the priest would say, no, it doesn't measure up. It has an imperfection, so that one's no good. 
So what people would tend to do is that they would skip bringing their own animal and they would buy an animal at the temple. And where would that buying and selling take place? In the court of the Gentiles. So can you imagine being a Gentile who had gathered at the temple, you're desperate to pray and to worship in this environment in the temple, and instead you encounter the bleeding of sheep, the clanging of coins, and lots and lots of people. So many people that it's estimated that at this particular time, as many as 300 to 400,000 people would inhabit the city of Jerusalem. It was chaos. And many of them needed to exchange their coins or to buy an animal sacrifice all in the court of the Gentiles. And so that is the first of the abuses, first of three, which is distraction. The second abuse was dishonesty, um, which is what I think really disturbed Jesus the most. It's one thing that it was noisy, but this, this was bad. For you see, the practice of exchanging currency and selling animals, as you can imagine, it turned into big business. Big business which exploited the worshipers. Huge fees were charged to exchange the money into the proper currency. All kinds of markup on doing that. And not only that, but then outrageous prices were attached to the animals to be purchased for sacrifice. There was a monopoly here. And the priests were eager to cash in on that monopoly. They were dishonest and taking advantage of people who just wanted to worship God. So that's why it says in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. How tragic that the house of worship for all nations had become a safe haven for dishonesty and exploitation. The third abuse after distraction and dishonesty was desecration. I almost put up this picture of the temple there again. Um, it's big. It's a big complex, taking up a lot of real estate. It could be very inconvenient to walk all around it. But what's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. And so people were actually using the court of the Gentiles as a shortcut between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. They would just cut right through that court of the Gentiles. So not only was there the chaos of the money changers and the buying and selling, but there was also the chaos of traffic of people just cutting through because they were essentially lazy. People using the sacred place meant for worship as a secular shortcut. And so those were the three abuses taking place in temple. Can you imagine um, if, if people just started walking through our sanctuary this morning because it was quicker to go from Shelby Street to uh, Stimson Street? I mean, that would certainly be distracting, wouldn't it? Desecrating this holy place. Well, here comes Jesus into this setting into the temple, bringing point number four of our outline, which is the judgment of the temple. Now let's look again at verse 15, where it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, who sold pigeons. Now, what, what's up with pigeons? What does that have to do with anything? Actually, a lot. Uh, pigeons are mentioned because they were used by the poorest of the poor for their sacrifices. 
can't afford a lamb, you can use a pigeon. And so the fact that they are specifically mentioned here in this passage tells us that even the poorest of the poor were being exploited by the religious authorities. And how do you think that made Jesus feel? Not good. And so he starts to clean house. We see a side of Jesus we don't normally see. Um, he starts driving out, it says, those buying and selling. In fact, that, that word driving out, it's the same word that's used when he casts out a demon. He drives out those buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers. So he eliminates distractions one and two. But then he even went to work on distraction number three, those who were taking the shortcut through the temple. For it says in verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, think about this for a moment. To, to prevent anyone from carrying anyone, anything through the temple meant that at some point or at some level, there was a physical altercation. At the very least, Jesus was blocking their path physically. This is Jesus exhibiting righteous anger, and yet he is still without sin. He is determined to restore the sanctity of his house and to remove all the obstacles that had been in place for those who desired to worship him there. But not only was it a cleansing, I think it went far beyond that. It was also an act of judgment and condemnation, dare I even say a cursing, of the temple and its leadership and act very much like the cursing of the fig tree, just as the fig tree had leaves but no fruit, so it was in the temple and its leadership. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree, causing it to wither from its roots and be destroyed. And guess what happened in 70 AD? The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It withered at its roots, just like the fig tree. Interestingly, that 70 A.D. is only six years after Herod had finished his expansion project. It only stood for six years until it was once again destroyed, reminding us that everything Jesus says, he will do. His words never fail. So those are the four parts of our text today, the history, purpose, abuse, and judgment of the temple. Let's shift our focus now to application asking that question, how should we then live? Three points this morning with a, a couple subpoints. Point number one is this, church, you are now the temple. You are now the temple. So it's so interesting as we read about um, the holiness, the sanctity of the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem were the places where God's very presence was to dwell, guess what? God's Spirit now dwells in you. And so, to be honest with you, this church building is not the best corresponding element to the temple. You are more than this building. 
And that changes everything. It completely revolutionizes how we view who we are and what we do. Just as a temple is meant to be holy, so we are meant to be holy. What kind of an edifice is meant to house a holy God? A holy edifice. That's you. That's me. Which raises the question for us this morning, how holy is your temple today? How holy is your temple This leads us to application point number two, which is not only are you now the temple, but you have the very same purpose as the temple. The purpose of the temple was worship and prayer and evangelism. Remember that Jesus said in verse 17, my house, my temple shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The purpose of the temple was worship and evangelism, and so it is to be for each and every one of us. As God's temples, where the presence of God resides in the person of the Holy Spirit, our purpose is prayer and worship and evangelism. It is why we exist. And everything else is to flow from these purposes. But as was the case in the court of the Gentiles in the time of Jesus, application point number three, you may need to be cleansed like the temple in Jerusalem. Remember that there were three abuses going on in the court of the Gentiles, and it's, it's actually quite eerie to see how those abuses, the first abuse that hindered the fulfillment of the temple's purpose was, again, distraction. Distraction. Now, if anybody struggle with distraction? If you had to choose an animal that best describes the attention span of human beings, what would it be? Yep, according to a Time Magazine article, the best answer is the goldfish. This is a quote from that article. It says, The average attention span for the notoriously ill-focused goldfish is nine seconds. But according to a new study from Microsoft, people now generally lose concentration after eight seconds, highlighting the effects of an increasingly digitalized lifestyle on the brain. And, and it's interesting, we, we wonder why, why God seems distant, or we can't hear His voice, or why it's hard to read the Bible, or why it's hard to pray. Church, we are literally distracting ourselves into spiritual numbness. We are literally rewiring our brains in such a way that we can't sit still and hear from God or engage His Word. i got, I got to tell you, as a pastor, this is terrifying to me as we see more and more and more and more our attention spans fade away and people can't sit still and listen. It's like God's primary source of revelation for us is in the form of what? A book. A book. And so we must fight back. We must, if, if that's the direction of the culture, we must become countercultural and say, that's not going to happen to us. We're literally distracting ourselves into spiritual numbness and preventing our temples from fulfilling the purposes for which they were created, prayer, worship, and evangelism. And so I ask you this question, what is one distraction you need to eliminate from your life so that your temple can fulfill its intended purpose of prayer and worship. Might the Holy Spirit this morning identify one thing 
to say, you know what? You need to get rid of this in order to better hear my voice, in order to better wait upon me, in order to better abide. So, um, the next abuse of the temple after distraction was dishonesty. The temple had become a den of robbers, a safe haven for sin. Let me say that again. It had become a safe haven for sin, for all kinds of deception and dishonesty. And so clearly, this was a major hindrance to fulfilling the temple's purpose of worship and evangelism. And so it is in our lives. When our temple becomes a den of robbers, when it becomes a safe haven for sin, a place where sin dwells and harbors, it hinders the purposes of the temple. The psalmist said in 66.18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He's basically saying, if I had let my temple become a safe haven for sin, God's not listening to my prayers. When our temples become a safe haven for sin, communion with God, with a holy God, is not possible. So I ask you this question this morning. How might your temple have become a den of robbers, a safe haven for sin? And will you confess this sin to God? Will you be set free from the bondage that is there by the power of His Holy Spirit? The third abuse in the temple was desecration. Treating that which is sacred as something secular. As impatient travelers took a shortcut through the house of the Lord, disregarding holiness as if it really didn't matter. And church, if we're honest... We tend to treat our bodies, our physical bodies, these temples that God has given to us, often as if they don't matter. We have bought into a very faulty theology regarding the human physical body. That this, it's the spirit, the spirit, the soul, that's important. The body doesn't really matter. The body is not important. That is a bad, faulty theology. And so according to that bad, faulty theology, we treat our physical bodies in this life as if they don't really matter. And so we neglect our bodies, we abuse our bodies, and we misuse our bodies. And in short, we desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you this morning, how might you be guilty of either neglecting or abusing or misusing your physical body, which is intended to be the temple, the holy, holy temple of the Holy Spirit? And this morning, would you surrender yourself to the cleansing work of Jesus? Now, the good news for us this morning is we have the opportunity to experience the cleansing part, but not the cursing part. Jesus wants to clean house. He wants to make us clean, not because he's angry and vengeful against you, but because he wants the best for you, because he loves you, 
because he wants to have communion with you. And he knows that that is not possible as long as your temple is a safe harbor for sin. And it is not an overstatement to say that either the neglect, abuse, or misuse of our physical bodies is a grievous sin against the Holy Spirit. And so, how should we then live? Number one, you are now the temple. You have the same purpose as the temple, which is worship and prayer and evangelism. And number three, you, me, we may need to be cleansed like the temple. And so that section of Scripture, it began back in verse 11 when it said, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, when Jesus looks at your temple, when he looks at my temple, what does he see? Let us pray. Again, Father, I find it striking that the abuses of the temple in Jerusalem are really not that different than ways that we abuse our temples today. And so rather than us get all high and mighty and judgmental toward the religious leaders and what they were doing in the context of the temple, may we take a humble, hard look at what it is that we're doing with the temple that you've entrusted to us. God, thank you. Thank you that we have the privilege of housing the Holy Spirit within us, that He lives, He dwells, He resides in us just as He did in the Holy of Holies. But God, may we not become disconnected with some of the doctrine and the teaching of what that sacred space was all about and how we too are to be sacred space for the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. So God, give us a fresh vision for holiness this morning. And God, where correction is needed, may we be humble and teachable. And may we be reminded this morning that it is not about us trying harder, doing more. It is about us resting and abiding in Jesus. You are the vine. We are the branches. And it's only through you that we are able to bear much fruit. And so where that abiding connection perhaps has been ruptured or interrupted, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you restore it this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.